This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. Another episode of the Behind Gray Walls podcast, podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who worked and resided here. My name's Anthony. I'm chatting with Sky here in the studio. Hi. Hey. How you doing? Good. How was your Christmas? Oh my gosh, it was very wonderful. What was and, your favorite uh, present? A metronome, actually. Oh. Yeah. You wear it, and so I can play music, and it's not like tick. You know, okay, it's like this yeah. really annoying thing. Now I can actually just feel it. Whoa. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So cool. I, I've i just been playing like nonstop and just like trying oh, it with every instrument. Fun. Like, Ooh, I'm going to play banjo with it and see how, oh, wow. You know, just, mm. I always like, it's like having a, a full-time drummer with you, having a metronome. Not That's as, pretty cool. Not as fun, but, sure. you know, it's still fun to like play off of it and jam with it. That's stuff, cool. So. That's anyway, awesome. How about you? Oh, I mean, I got lots of D and D stuff, which was great oh, for me. Gosh, um, nice. Like and some characters. Yeah. Or? Well, so my mom got me um, a sweatshirt that has the old, like from the very first edition artwork Ooh. on it. And then my friend from Tennessee. This is the like the sweetest thing. So my character in the campaign, I play with him. She has an emotional support hedgehog, <laughs> and um, so he got me like customized dice that have a little hedgehog wow. in the dice what? which is really cute awesome. but yeah overall is a good christmas good time oh spent gosh. with the family we did an escape room on christmas eve we got out in 27 with 27 minutes left i don't know we killed it somehow wow yeah it was wild Super geniuses well Get no I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> i don't know about that <laughs> i feel like i always say with escape rooms like most other people are really good at them. I am like too academic for it. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't have the street smarts. I just have the like, oh, if you were to need a random historical fact, gotcha covered. But ever like anything that's like common sense is like over my head. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. Um, but that was really fun. So nice. yeah, yeah. And it that's was awesome. snowy on Christmas. We had a white Christmas, oh, which was so great. Nice. My yeah. favorite thing. It's a bit icy more than snowy, but you know what? White is white, so take it. I'm going to say shout out to the old Penn staff Mm -hmm. and to our maintenance crew here. Mm -hmm. Just constant de-icing and shoveling snow this winter. So if you've come out, you know, and you see one of those guys, give them a shout out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we've got some... 
some de- chipper, yeah. <laughs> uh, chipper voices right now right. talking about the holidays, but we have some of the saddest stories. And that's so. how we're going to start the new year with the yes. depressing stories. Happy new year. Happy everyone. new year. Happy last episode of the season. <laughs> it's kind of a funny contradiction that we've got <laughs> going on bit, here. But bit. Maybe, you know, it'll set somebody straight. You maybe. Know, they'll they'll yeah. hear this and be like, you know what? I'm not going to commit this crime. I and, hope so. Uh, I don't want to pay the ultimate penalty. I hope so. That's That would be like, <laughs> I think our pod, our whole podcast would be worth it if we kept one, one person from committing a crime. So if yes. you're that person and you were going to commit a crime and you said, I, I heard about them on your podcast yeah. and I decided I didn't want to, please let us know. We would love to chat. <laughs> Change your life. <laughs> we would love a testimonial yes. that we could play before yes. every episode <laughs> about how great we are. Well, well, who do you have? <laughs> Number 7610, Elizabeth Lottie Lacey. Buckle up. Oh, this is boy. a heck of a ride. Yes. So our sources today, InmateFile, Newspapers.com Records, Ancestry.com Records, DestinationCaldwell.com, CityOfCaldwell.com, Neighborhoods Historic Caldwell by Sharon Fisher from TerritoryMag.com, sbtribes.com slash about the ishs reference series on the bannock war at camas prairie digitalcollections.lib.washington.edu an obituary of francis x bush trim lawyer 96 from new york times on november 29th 1975 and then quick wikipedia articles on caldwell bannock war of 1878 and sacco and Benzetti. so here we go <laughs> so elizabeth lottie lacy was born lottie elizabeth hopkins on october 22nd 1910 in laverne in Utah, which is in the uh, southwesternmost county in the state. Elizabeth is what she comes in in the prison as, but she preferred to go by the name Lottie. Oh, okay. Her parents were Will Hopkins and Katie Elizabeth Sigler Hopkins, and uh, Lottie was the second oldest of eight kids. She had an older sister, Bernice, uh, and younger sisters, Barbara, Mary, Vanda, Vinnie, Milda, and Maxine, and a younger brother named Walter. We know only a little bit about her early life. Her father was a rock miner and farmer. And when I looked that up, I think it just means that he mined for like hard rock minerals rather than like softer minerals like uh, through sand or gravel or stuff like that. It's more like the metals, the ores. Gotcha. Uh, so it, it sounds Makes like sense. he just was kind of a typical miner. But yeah. but that was the what he listed himself under okay. uh, on the on the census. And then her mother was a housewife. Lottie said her relationships with her siblings, quote, has always been close and tie strong, end quote. According to her, her father was sometimes a little too strict, while her mother tended to be a little, quote, more lenient and displayed more affection and attention to Lacey and her siblings than did the father, end quote. But overall, she reported that she had a pleasant, happy childhood. Again, not not surprising in the fact that she was born in Utah. She was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or as it's better known as Mormon. Um, She completed the ninth grade, but stated she often missed school to help care for her mother, who was chronically ill through her youth. According to the Parowan Times from Parowan, Utah, she visited some relatives in Cedar City, about 40 miles north of Virgin, in 1926. Hey, that's where my family's from. From Virgin, Utah? Uh, Oh, from Cedar City. Oh, from Cedar City, um, which is down south, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty close to St. George? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's unclear if it was this visit to Cedar City in 1926 or if she visited Cedar City several times prior or after, but probably while she was in Cedar City at some point, she met a man named Vivian Ashdown. Vivian was the oldest of eight children. Uh, he was raised in a farming family in Cedar City, and I think they were also LDS. This was hard to verify in his case. 
Lottie married Vivian on May 23rd, 1927 in Parowan when she was just 16 years old. And according to Lottie, almost as soon as they got married, the problems between the couple began. After her incarceration, she wrote out a statement that detailed her marriage to Vivian, which stated, quote, he drank whiskey before I married him or anything he could get drunk on, end quote. Was he uh, also LDS? We, I think he was. It was hard to verify with him. Um, but it's it's very rare, especially in these early days, that those living in Utah weren't yeah. LDS. But it's also not impossible. So. Yeah. so about two and a half years after their marriage, Vivian and Lottie welcomed their first daughter, LaRue, on December 3rd, 1929. And per her written statement, quote, our first baby came, he started being mean and cruel with me, end quote. Oh. So after Vivian and Lottie were married, the Ashdown and Hopkins families must have spent a lot of time together because in 1931, Lottie's younger sister, Vinnie, and Vivian's younger brother, Melbourne, married. So now there's two Ash- Ashdown Hopkins marriages. Wow. And so it's like if, like if my wife had a sister and my brother married yeah. the sister. Okay. Yep, correct. And there's going to be more parallels between these two families it's actually wild wow so on april 6 1933 the iron county reporter from cedar city announced that another girl named dallas was born to mr and mrs vivian ashdown but according to lottie with every child vivian would say that this time he would quit his drinking and quote-unquote cruel ways but once the baby was born he would go back into his old ways then on april 22nd 1935 vivian and lottie had their first son Sadly, however, this baby, who they named Vivian Jr., died just one day after his birth. Oh, that's heartbreaking. I know. Um, And as the years passed and the children came, Vivian's behavior, according to Lottie, continued to get worse and worse. Quote, during all my pregnancies, he would drink heavy. If I would not give him intercourses, he would call me every mean name he could call me and beat me. Then I would give in to him or he would beat me. When I was seven and eight months pregnant, he would force me into giving him intercourses regardless of my feelings. End quote. In late 1936, she was pregnant again, and she gave birth to the couple's third daughter, Rosa Lee, on June 12, 1937. But the family's joy was accompanied by sorrow, because just three days later, on June 15th, their oldest daughter, LaRue, died after suffering from chronic myocarditis, which is just inflammation of the heart, and which she had suffered from for about two years. And LaRue was just seven and a half years old at the time of her death. The family published a small statement of thanks in the Iron County Record on June 24th, saying, quote, we take this opportunity to express our appreciation and thanks to our friends and neighbors, also the doctor during the illness and death of our dear little daughter, LaRue. We thank those for the beautiful floral offerings and also those taking part in the services, Mr. and Mrs. Vivian Ashdown and family, end quote. The extended Ashdown and Hopkins families continued to associate with each other because in 1939, Lottie's younger sister, Milda, married Vivian's younger brother, Ray, in Cedar City. So this is the third (laughs) marriage between these families. But this third Ashdown-Hopkins marriage started with major difficulties, as the Iron County Record reported on October 26, 1939, that two complaints were filed by sisters Milda Ashdown and Lottie Ashdown in regards to what appears to be an affair between Ray and a young woman named Arlene. Arlene Prisby. Ray is Milda's husband. husband. Oh, so Milda puts in a complaint and then Lottie basically backs her up. This was not the first time that Ray had been in trouble with the law. In November 1938, he was arrested for, quote, hunting, pursuing, and shooting without a license and out of season, end quote. 
don't go hunting out of season folks don't, don't yeah. do it buy a fishing license too i don't do either of those but yes please <laughs> do it <laughs> so these filings came just a month after milda had given birth to their first child a daughter named beverly born on september 24th 1939 it's unclear what came of these charges i couldn't find any follow-up articles about it and then just a month after these complaints were filed the second ashdown hopkins marriage Vinnie and melbourne ended in divorce oh with Vinny given custody of their three children. This is the first breakdown of what seems to be very ill-fated Ashdown Hopkins marriages. Yeah, that's just too much. It's so it's so much. Yeah, it's so much. I would be so sick of my family and my in-laws family by then. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, there's like no longer a separation. Yeah. It's just two family just like, like Yeah combined yeah it's it's so it's so odd but again this is not the first like there's more parallels it's so bonkers so at some point in either 1939 or 1940 lottie gave birth to their fourth daughter barbara i had no ancestry records to nail down a date that she was born but thankfully the inmate file of lottie takes note of barbara because if it had not taken like if they hadn't noted her on that i actually would have missed her altogether because there's no like ancestry records of her The next time that Lottie appears in the papers comes on July 3rd, 1941, when she and several family members were in a big car wreck near a small town in central Utah called Scipio. In this big car wreck, according to the Iron County record, Lottie was driving a car on Highway 91 with her husband, their daughter Dallas, and her mother Elizabeth Hopkins when she collided with an automobile with a California license plate traveling the opposite way. Those suffering more major injuries were sent to a hospital 60 miles away in Payson. Her mother suffered a hip injury, her daughter had head cuts, and she herself suffered a small skull fracture and shock. And two passengers of the other car, Dr. John A. Sexton, uh, he suffered a leg injury and a fractured rib, and Leonard M. Ricardle had fractured ribs. So this was a pretty serious um, injury. According to her mother, Lottie was unconscious for four days after this incident, and, quote, she hasn't seen the same since, end quote. Wow. Vivian and two passengers in the other car, Frederick J. Carr and Vernon M. Bridolph, had minor injuries and were treated at Nephi, Utah, about 40 miles away. Everyone seemed to recover satisfactorily after a bit of time, and Lottie and Dallas were able to complete their recovery at a hospital in Cedar City. Within a year of the accident, Vivian, Lottie, and the girls moved to Marsing, Idaho, where Vivian worked on the farm of Owyhee farmer Oscar Pfeiffer. By 1945, Vivian had saved up enough money to buy an 80-acre farm outside of Homedale, just a few miles away from Marsing, which they named Graveyard Point. Graveyard Point. Graveyard Point. Wow, that's a spooky name. Yeah, I know. I don't know why. Maybe they were close to a graveyard or something. I'm not sure. According to Lottie, the abuse from Vivian continued even after they moved to Idaho. According to the Canyon County prosecuting attorney, who had very few positive things to say about Lottie, quote, during the last four or five years of their married life, she began going with other men, left her husband and children to shift for themselves, and while married to Mr. Ashdown, she lived with a man in Boise for a number of months using another name, end quote. This seems like a little bit exaggerated, but it, of course, is an out of the realm of possibility. I just take this statement with a grain of salt because of how harshly the prosecuting attorney writes about her. And so stay tuned to hear why that is. But there is kind of this rumor going around that she's cheating and and that he's being abusive. And so it just is a it's a bad situation yeah. altogether. According to findagrave.com, the only place that I found evidence of this, on December 21st, 1946, Lottie gave birth to another son they named Frank William in Nampa. But I think per some other records, I found that Frank was stillborn. Mm. 
So that's three children who have died. And then Frank is actually buried in the Wilder Cemetery. By 1947, Vivian's drinking and abuse became too much to handle, and the couple's divorce was finalized on October 1st. Vivian was granted custody of their three children, which is fairly rare at that time. Usually, I guess at that time, it kind of depended because there was a period of time in which fathers always received custody. And then probably around this time, we start to see that shift of mothers getting custody. But Lottie just received visitation rights. uh, And Vivian was also given all of their property. That seems so surprising. Yeah. Did she file for divorce against him? I'm not sure. I couldn't. uh, There weren't too many details on that record, if I recall correctly. And there were actually, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but there are two different, uh, I think, divorce records, if I remember. So it didn't specify that I saw. Wow. Uh, According to the prosecuting attorney, Lottie married a quote unquote Mr. Lacey in Reno, Nevada on October 7th, 1948. I am not totally sure of the validity of this claim. The PA only refers to him as Mr. Lacey, and there are only two newspapers who refer to him, and they call him J.H. Lacey of Salt Lake City, but I couldn't find any records of anyone by that name in Salt Lake. Of course, that doesn't mean he didn't exist. It just means I couldn't find any records of him or the marriage or anything like that. The prosecuting attorney also stated that during her marriage to Mr. Lacey, quote, she attempted to get him to change his bank account into a joint bank account and to increase his insurance, end quote. This is the only time this claim comes about, um, and it's not like a regular pattern in her life. Like we've seen, you know, Lida, of course, is, is a great example of this, of someone who gets married and then is is trying to take out insurance claims. Lottie doesn't do that. So I don't know. Again, it just seems like the prosecuting attorney who does not like her for reasons that we'll see, and he's just kind of always down on her character so i kind of question whether that is true or not however on march 19th 1949 despite her supposed marriage to mr lacey and despite all of the claims she made against vivian lottie and vivian remarried in caldwell idaho is there a divorce record between? well so if mr jh lacey actually existed she did commit bigamy by marrying for a second time but again since the prosecuting attorney is the only one who made this claim it's hard to say that that's the case so i don't know where he's getting this this like record again all we have is jh which could be any initial um so it's it's a really weird situation around that super weird okay so however the second marriage was once again short-lived but perhaps not for the reason you are expecting. Just two days later, on March 21st, 1949, Vivian passed away. He was only 45 at the time of his death. The family removed his body from Idaho to Cedar City, Utah, where they had spent most of their lives, and they buried him in the local cemetery. As Lottie was returning from Cedar City from her husband's funeral, she was met in Salt Lake City by Canyon County Prosecutor W.W. Wander and Canyon County Sheriff Ray Lakanga, who arrested her on a charge of first-degree murder in the death of Vivian. Wow. That happened suddenly. It did. So, record scratch, we're going to talk about Caldwell, which we actually haven't talked about Caldwell yet, and it is is quite an interesting little place. So, southern Idaho, where Caldwell is situated, was historically the home of Shoshone-Bannock tribes, and this is their history in their own words from sbtribes.com, which again is a, a resource I highly recommend checking out. So, it says, quote, 
The Shoshone-Bannock tribes are comprised of the eastern and western bands of the northern Shoshone and the Bannock, or northern Paiute bands. Ancestral lands of both tribes occupied vast regions of land encompassing present-day Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, and into Canada. The tribes are culturally related, and though both descend from the Numic family of the Uto-Aztecan linguistic phylum, but their languages are dialectically separate. So they're culturally similar, but languages are not. Okay. When the northern Paiutes left the Nevada and Utah regions for southern Idaho in the 1600s, they began to travel with the Shoshones in pursuit of buffalo. They became known as the Bannocks. End quote. We've talked about the Shoshone-Bannock tribes quite a bit on the podcast because of their prevalence in what is southern Idaho, but what we haven't talked about much is the Bannock specifically, including an incredibly important event in Idaho and Shoshone-Bannock history, which is the Bannock War of 1878. So in the 1800s, Euro-American exploration and settlement began to challenge the ways of life of the Shoshone-Bannock from agriculture and production to culture and traditions. One of those things included the buy and sale of land practiced by Euro-Americans, which began to force the tribes off their land and created a scarcity of resources. Supposedly, some Shoshone-Bannock began to ask for a reservation for their own security and protection. The proposed reservation, Fort Hall near Pocatello, quote, challenged the Shoshone-Bannock cosmology and their religious connection to the land as their cultural practices were based in local seasonal changes in the Snake Valley. They believed their ancestors' spirits still resided in the land. Leadership among the Shoshone-Bannock was believed to be directly connected to the land which these ancestors inhabited, granting the chief his position, end quote. Through complex deliberation, Shoshone-Bannock leaders and the American government officials came to agreement and completed relocation in 1869. The winters of 1874 and 1875 and 1876-77 through 77 were particularly harsh, making it difficult for the traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle of the Shoshone-Bannock, and the government was unable to fulfill their promises to provide adequate food supplies for those on the reservation. On top of that, the Nez Perce War of 1877 caused American officials to crack down on American Indian reservations, requiring residents to remain within reservation boundaries. As some Bannock tribal members left the reservation to try to find their own food, officials began to strictly enforce that residents had to remain on the reservation. This is going to cause a lot of problems. These people are simply trying to survive, and they're being told, you can't leave this area, but we also can't give you the food you need. Conflicts and violence between the tribes and Euro-Americans understandably escalated. When a Fort Hall resident shot and wounded two white Teamsters, the government-appointed agent over the Fort Hall reservation pressed tribal leaders to charge him with murder. In response to the pressure to charge him, another tribal member shot and killed, quote, a beef contractor for the reservation, end quote. Again, the agent asked the nation to turn the killer over to U.S. officials, but the Shoshone-Bannock refused, saying, quote, it was the duty of the family of the killer to resolve the crime, not the nation, end quote. Violence escalated even further, and when the U.S. government ordered the army to return Shoshone-Bannock peoples to the reservation, the spark of the Bannock War of 1878 had been lit. In May 1878, Bannock Chief Buffalo Horn moved 200 Bannock warriors to the Big Camas Prairie, where major altercations took place. But in June, a group of volunteer soldiers from Silver City got into a skirmish with a band of Bannock warriors, which resulted in the death of two Silver City volunteers and several Bannock, including Chief Buffalo Horn. 
The Manic then selected a new leader, Chief Egan, and moved west to meet with the Paiute in current-day Oregon, meaning they likely moved across present-day Canyon County, engaging in some small raids along the way. The U.S. Army and the Bannock met in battles in present-day Oregon at sites like Silver Creek, Steens Mountain, and at the junction of Butter Creek and the Columbia River, resulting in estimated losses in low double digits for the U.S. Army and unknown Bannock casualties. In July, um, an Army captain named Miles encountered a large band of Umatilla warriors who had ridden off the Umatilla reservation in defense, feeling threatened by increased movements of state militia around their territories. The Umatilla offered to ally with Miles against the Bannock, which one historian theorized was due to the large bounty that was placed on Chief Egan's head. Within 24 hours, Umatilla leaders pursued the Bannock and entered the Bannock camp, posing as allies hoping to negotiate. Instead, they killed several Bannock, including Chief Egan. After his death, the Bannock struggled to maintain a united front and conflicts between the remaining Bannock bands and the military played out by September. The rest of the Bannock either returned to the Fort Hall Reservation or pursued their traditional hunting in small groups. After the Bannock War of 1878, the U.S. government further restricted movements of the Bannock off the Fort Hall Reservation, Bannock connections with other tribal groups, and Bannock freedom to use local resources. So they just really cracked down on the tribe. Five years after the Bannock War, in 1883, Robert E. Strayhorn, representative of the Oregon Short Line Railroad, came to Idaho to select a route for his railroad. He deemed the grade into Boise too steep, but found a site 30 miles west that was much more suitable. When he drove a stake into a flat of sagebrush, the city of Caldwell was officially platted. Strayhorn named the new town after one of his business partners, Alexander Caldwell, a former senator from Kansas. And a city in Kansas named Caldwell is also named after him. The Oregon and Idaho Land Improvement Company platted Caldwell in August 1883, originally part of Ada County. Immediately, they began trying to persuade settlers and businessmen to move into the area. Within four months, Caldwell had 600 residents, 40 operating businesses, a school, a telephone exchange, and two newspapers. Uh, The city was incorporated in 1890. The College of Idaho, go Yotes, your alma mater, was founded a year later in 1891. A year later than that, in 1892, Canyon County was sectioned off from Ada County and Caldwell was named the county seat. In 1906, a passenger train depot was built in Caldwell after the Oregon Short Line was incorporated into the Union Pacific Network. Caldwell has been an agricultural-based economy since almost the beginning when irrigation canals were constructed throughout Canyon County. It is also the foundation community of the J.R. Simplot Company, one of the world's largest processors and producers of frozen food. It is also home to Sunny Slope Wine Country and, quote, farm-to-fork dining experiences, end quote, which sounds delicious. Caldwell has steadily grown in every decade since its founding, and much like surrounding communities in Canyon and Ada counties, saw an absolute explosion of growth between 2010 and 2020. The 2010 population was 46,237. The 2020 population was 59,996. So it's almost uh, 14,000 people in yeah. in 10 years. Kind of interesting stories. So back to Lottie. You know, we ended with the sheriff and the, the prosecutor uh, arresting Lottie in Salt Lake City. So you may be wondering why Wander and Lukanga suspected Lottie in the first place. This is because, according to an Idaho Statesman article from April 19th, 1949, of, quote, the alertness of Dr. William Kelly, a Waihee County coroner. Dr. Kelly refused to sign the death certificate for Ashdown and called a coroner's inquest into the death at Homedale, end quote. After her arrest, however, Lottie immediately confessed to murdering Vivian, waived extradition to Idaho, and was lodged in the Canyon County Jail charged with first-degree murder. Wow. Yeah. 
And you'll find, and I, I think I mentioned this later, she never denies she did it, wow. which is so interesting. So her confession thoroughly outlined the details of exactly what happened and the series of events is as follows. On February 19th, 1949, she bought a, a bottle of strychnine, quote, with the express purpose of killing Mr. Ashdown, end quote. On March 10th, she dropped the strychnine into Vivian's whiskey bottle, allowing him to drink from the bottle. Instead of driving him to a doctor in Homedale, which is where they were at the time, she drove him to a doctor seven miles away, probably in an attempt to allow the strychnine to take effect. This attempt, however, failed and Vivian survived. Then on March 12th, she drove into Caldwell and bought another bottle of strychnine, an eighth of an ounce, at a local pharmacy using the name Mrs. Jack Brown and listing her address as Fruitland, Idaho. She told the pharmacist she was buying the strychnine to kill some rats. Then March 19th, Lottie and Vivian remarry in Caldwell. Then on March 21st, Lottie and Vivian leave Homedale at 10 a.m. to buy a tractor and Vivian immediately started drinking. At about 5.30 or 6 p.m., the couple stopped at a roadside hamburger stand. Lottie bought the burgers and sprinkled strychnine on one of them, bringing them back to the car without Vivian noticing. So as they started driving back to Homedale, a short distance outside of Caldwell, Vivian pulled the car over and began vomiting. He tried to drive again, but he pulled over and he asked Lottie to drive. At the north end of the Homedale Bridge over the Snake River, Lottie stopped the car and threw both the whiskey and the strychnine bottle into the river. Then she drove to Graveyard Point, their farm, to tell her oldest daughter, 16-year-old Dallas, that their father was dead. Lastly, she drove to the home of Dr. W.J. Kelly, general practitioner and Owyhee County coroner, who pronounced Vivian dead at 7.20 p.m. According to an Idaho Statesman article published on March 31st, even after her confession, Sheriff Lukanga, quote, said that despite two days of questioning, the motive for the slaying was still obscure. In both her written statement and in oral statements, the accused woman gave a number of reasons. These included, Lukanga said, it was for the benefit of the children, her husband's drinking, and fear that some other woman would get the ranch, end quote. Even if she had a number of reasons, why, I guess, do you have to have just one? He, he's saying, like, her motive is still obscure, but it doesn't really seem obscure to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if she's she herself is giving all these reasons, it sounds like she knows why she did it. Yeah. To attempt it twice. Yeah. Yeah, she's she, got reasons. Yeah, she's, she had a reason for it. Yeah. For sure. And, yeah. So the Ogden Standard Examiner reported that Lottie had shown officials large scars on her hands, which had come from wounds caused by Vivian, and that Vivian had, quote, threatened her life several times, end quote. Still, Lukango continued to believe that the murder was motivated by Lottie wanting to keep the ranch. Which, again, it is, these, like, accusations against her are so wild. Like, you have, she's telling you why she did it, and it's because the abuse she's claiming most of all. And yet you're still, like, I think she wanted to keep the ranch. Who knows why she did it? I mean, she's she did, telling you. Yeah, she did remarry. She oh, her, their second marriage. You yeah. mean? Yeah, they. I think they remarried so that she would be closer to him to do it. Like, yeah. and, I, I just but think it's if, so odd. If he were to die, then she would receive the ranch after that. So I think. Yeah. If you're looking at it from like a financial viewpoint, like. Yeah, I guess I could see the that. Abuser, you know, killing yeah. the abuser. Yeah, I, it's just so odd because they just never take that excuse to be good enough yeah while the complaint against her was being read in court at her arraignment lottie cried out i did it again she's never she's not denying she did it she is 
outright saying, I did it, I killed him. And that to me is not someone who wants to keep a ranch. That's someone who's doing it for what she deems to be a legitimate reason. I think in her case, it'll explain it a little bit more, but I think it's mostly for her kids, her children's safety. I think prosecutors, they don't know if she's done this to herself and she's making this all up so that she gets off. And so they're seeing it as like, uh, this sounds like you're making these stories up Mm. so you get a lesser degree of murder or you get off on this charge. And you just want yeah. that ranch. Yeah, I, I just <laughs> I think that's know. so interesting, though. Because, I, again, I, I feel like maybe I am just have listened to too many true crime things or yeah. watched too many movies. But, like, I feel like if someone was doing it for the ranch, they wouldn't be like, oh, I did it. Because the, yeah. they're not going to – she's not going to get the ranch. If she says, like, I did it, she's – I don't know. I find <laughs> it so interesting. It's – This is crazy. Yeah. So Lottie herself had an incredibly detailed explanation as to why she had killed Vivian. And believe it or not, it was not because she wanted to keep the ranch. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to read this whole letter. It's pretty long, but like I think this is going to give an idea of Lottie's explanation. So, quote, there were only 11 months of my life I could call happy with him. He tried once to kill me with a 30-30 rifle. Also, I've got a scar from that. One from his trying to cut my throat. He's been so mean and cruel to me and girls all our lives until I had to get my divorce. He was accused of having an intercourse with my oldest daughter, which he did not deny. Finally, he met a barfly, took her out to the ranch to live with him. They would send my two minor girls to Marsing with a note to buy beer for them. They would stay drunk three weeks at a time. They kicked my oldest girl out of her home, and my baby then left home. They told them to never come back. I received a letter from my poor girls begging me to come back. He was treating them and was cruel to them and kicking them around like dogs. He wouldn't give them any money for clothing or school lunch. Their clothes were nothing but rags. My sister and girl said all he thought of was this woman and his bottles, cigarettes, and my girls caught them, their dad and this woman having an intercourse in daytime. She said, you GD kids get out of their house and stay out. That on everything cut my heart, thinking how he had done the girls and me in the past. He always made unusual sexual demands on me any time and beat me if I wouldn't give in to him. He always drank so heavy I was afraid of him. My girls begged me to marry him. They still had hopes he would quit his drinking in cruel ways. I had my mind made up. He wasn't going to wreck my girls' lives as he had mine. The main reason I'd done this crime was to save my girls' lives for their peace and happiness in the future from their drunken father. All we ever had in our home was trouble with his mean and cruel ways and his drinking all the time. I would take my babies and go to Sunday school and church to get away from it and pray to God for him to change. He was wrecking my girl's life and future. They had lost all their respect and love for him, were ashamed to call them their father. I warned him many times he could never mistreat them like he had me. His own people said if it hadn't been for me, he wouldn't have done anything. I worked hard all my life. When the girls told me everything he and that woman had done, Then this woman would go around the house in the nude without any clothes on. The girl said, Mommy, Dad just has lost all his love for us and respect for us and himself. It was so bad I couldn't take it any longer. Nothing seemed to matter, only protecting my girls. I couldn't see my girls suffering any longer, end quote. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. So there's no doubt that Lottie did it. There's just a doubt she did it only because she wanted to keep Graveguard Point in the family. Mm. Like, that to me is like a letter of just not desperation, but just like, uh, she says several times, I did this for my girls. Mm-hmm. He was mistreating them in several ways. He was going around with this woman and, you know, maybe having sex in the daytime in view of these young girls. Yeah. It just is not a good situation. 
Were there any other people who could validate her claims? Did her kids come um, to the stand or anything? I, I, don't do, I don't think they did. I don't think they even, they didn't have a trial because she admitted to right. it. She pled guilty. And yeah. so I think later the kids write a letter. I think when she tries to get out. Oh, okay. We do also have a letter from her sister-in-law, which we'll get to in just a moment. Okay. And it's not very nice. So it's, it's just a, a convoluted case yeah. because there's kind of both sides mm-hmm. going on and both sides are kind of doubtful. So it's kind of a, a that's, complicated that's case. That's the hard part. Like, yeah. I mean, thinking about the prosecutor and the detectives mm-hmm. on this case and mm-hmm. they're like, okay, why don't we have a police record of the times he right. tried to shoot you? Or, right. Why aren't? Mm-hmm. Why is there no evidence of these things? Are you making this all mm-hmm. up? And is she like, making it up? And then, like, when his yeah. family defends him, mm-hmm. you know, obviously they're on his side. Are they getting the full story? Yeah. Are they telling the full story? Are they making things up against her? It just yeah. is convoluted. And that's the that's the worst part about mm-hmm. these abusive relationships mm-hmm. and the victims, like. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, unless there's there's evidence that's been built up, mm-hmm. you know. So, oh man, if if you ever witness something like this, like document it, yeah. so that you can maybe someday save somebody's life and help them. <laughs> like, yeah, oh. yeah. So there is never a good reason to murder anyone, yeah. but her own explanation seems a bit more like understandable and plausible to me than the one that the prosecuting attorney Wander put forth. He's the only one who says like, oh, she did it to keep the ranch. It yeah. just it just seems like someone who's taking her in bad faith. You right. know what I mean? Totally. Like no one would do this other than for this like insidious reason. Mm-hmm. On April 18th, 1949, less than one month after Vivian's death, Lottie Ashdown, using the name Elizabeth Lottie Lacey, pleaded guilty to first degree murder before Judge Thomas E. Buckner. With this plea came the possibility of the death penalty, which Lottie apparently faced bravely. On April 22nd, Lottie Lacey was sentenced to life in prison for killing her husband. She had to serve a minimum of 10 years before she could be considered for parole. She is actually the only female inmate who was ever found guilty and entered the penitentiary with a charge of murder in the first degree. Every other murder charge has been murder in the second degree. So she's the only one that has had had the death penalty sort of as a possibility. And I wonder if she had pled not guilty and mm. gone to trial, if she could have had a reduced mm. Yeah, to second degree. Or, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary the same day, April 22nd, 1949. So her intake form, County Canyon, plea guilty, religion, Mormon, education, ninth grade, name of last school, Leverkin Junior High School in Leverkin, Utah, married, yes, Address of, it says wife, because this is normally meant for male inmates, but she does write J.H. Lacey, Salt Lake City, Utah. I don't know who this man is. I don't know who he is. Her birth date, 10-22-11. Color of eyes, brown. Color of hair, graying brown. Height, 64 and 3 fourths inches. Weight, 130 and a half pounds. Medium complexion. No deformities or tattoos. How long she's been in Idaho? Seven years not vaccinated, does not drink, smoke, gamble, or do dope. And our favorite question, are you a communist? She says no. No, okay. Dang it. Uh, (laughs) And then her Bertillon, she had a one-inch scar and a second small scar on her forehead, a mole on her neck, and scars on her knees. The Ogden Standard Examiner described her as stocky, five foot three, and photos in the newspaper show a 38-year-old woman with dark hair and dark eyes. And these photos will be both on Facebook and on Instagram. She has obviously several mug shots and photos of her throughout her time here. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. They didn't mention the scars on 
on their hands. Yeah, on her hands, yeah. Officers about Interesting, so, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So she was one of seven inmates in the women's ward when she entered, including Verna Tarzan Keller, who I covered oh. in episode 56. Remember how last week I talked about how elderly Lennon served with like 40 inmates? Yeah. So Lottie served with 73 inmates wow. in her time in prison. Oh my Understandably, gosh. she was here much longer yeah. than Eldo was. That's but almost half the body. That's so many. That's so many. Wow. So apparently, her husband, Mr. Lacey, whoever he is, secured a divorce in the same month that she was incarcerated, and he then married soon after. She's the one who says this. She says, like, oh, he divorced me, and then he married again. Yeah. I can't find any records because I can't find any records of this man. I don't know who this man is. That's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> So within a month, a concerned citizen and Lottie's sister-in-law, Mary Ashdown Urie, wrote a scathing letter to sentencing judge Thomas E. Buckner. And in parentheses, I wrote, this is the craziest letter, so please forgive me if I read the whole thing. I think it demonstrates a lot of what the public thought of Lottie. So here we go. Quote, Your Honor, I hope I'm not overstepping rights, but I would like you to know how and why I feel the way I do about your sentence in the Ashdown case. I feel that you let us down, especially the children. Since she went as far as she did, I think the safety and welfare of the children should have been the guiding factor in your decision. I don't think I am prejudiced, as it is the general opinion that she should have hanged. It isn't the first time she has had homicidal intentions. It is well known locally that she, with a sister, tried to kill their father by poison in a cup of tea. It seems they got so much in it that with the first sip, he was able to taste it, therefore didn't get enough to do harm. This same sister has been doing a great deal of blabbing lately. She says if it hadn't been for Ray Levanger, who was Lottie's brother-in-law, Vivian and Lottie would have never been divorced, and she was only sorry she didn't get Ray while she was at it. Only she would have been smarter, she would have gotten away with the body. In 1935, Lottie gave birth to a son. Previous to its birth, she made the statement, if it is a boy, I won't keep it. I think it was for spite. However, she may have had other reasons. Anyway, it was one time she didn't go to the hospital for confinement, which is just the time after a woman gives birth, which we don't do now, but they did back then. The child was born at night. The next morning, it was dead. Two years later, the nurse she had at the time asked me if I knew she said she had laid on it. Do you think it wasn't deliberate? The statement she made about not wanting the children's lives spoiled as hers was lack sincerity. I would say she had done a good job of messing them up, and the letters that were introduced into the case, if they were from the children, which these seems to be a doubt, should have had little significance. It's only natural for children to want a mother. Their feeling for her now should have been considered. In a letter, one of the girls wrote she had said they had lived without her for three years, and they could live the rest of their lives without her. It was daddy they were going to miss. Vivian may not have done his utmost in doing for the children, but men have become depressed with far less than he had to put up with. How much better would it have been if she'd made a slip and got the poison? While here for burial services, she made the statement, It was too bad Vivian wasn't insured, and believe me, as soon as I can, I'm going to get the children insured. I believe her capable of taking their lives for a paltry sum. I have been trying not to become bitter about it, but for the sake of the children and society, I hope she is never free. End quote. Wow. Yeah, so these are wild accusations that, that mary is, is making pretty rough it yeah it's not good to have in your file no no <laughs> you do not want that um i couldn't find any evidence of any of these claims that she made it doesn't mean some of them aren't true but these are very extreme accusations yeah. for example mary claims that lottie deliberately smothered her infant son vivian jr but according to her son's death he died of cerebral hemorrhage and the coroner did not indicate his death was suspicious or even worth doing an autopsy for 
for the most part, it really seems that Vivian Jr.'s death was a tragedy. And I think it's really unfair for Mary to claim that Lottie continually plotted to kill everyone in her family. There is literally no evidence of this. And though I will admit it is quite a coincidence for both of her sons to have died on the same day that they were born, there isn't any evidence of foul play that I could find in either one of those deaths. We also know that her daughters did not hate her, as all three of them asked to write her while she was in prison and even wrote positive letters on her behalf, at least at the very beginning. And more on this later. Oh, this I is, just it's feel crazy. so bad for this family, too. Like yeah. these kids to be raised in this environment, which, mm-hmm. I mean, clearly wasn't healthy. Right. Like there were things going on between mom and dad. Well, but, and not just between yeah. mom and dad, between the two families. Oh, jeez. Three marriages. Oh, my God. One's already divorced. Now... You know, one wife has killed another husband, and we have a surprise coming for you, folks. There's still more. At graveyard point. At graveyard point. It, like, I feel like if you wrote this in a script, people would be like, you have to take that out. It's too obvious. That's too, It's too obvious. It's too cheesy. That's not right. Wow. Isn't this nuts? So in July and August, just a few months after Lottie was received, Ward and Clapp received two letters from her older sister, Bernice, but these were not letters of support. In her first letter, she did not have very many good things to say about Lottie. Quote, I know the things she has always done and what she has pulled on people all our life, which isn't very good, and I would like to know if she will ever get out. I am afraid of my own life with her. She has pulled so much on all of the family, and she took one's life and would have done more if she could have done. End quote. Oh, man. She continues on to ask Gordon Clapp if she could send some of Lottie's things to the prison because she had them and she really didn't want them. So her older sister just turned on her. The whole case is so weird. In her second letter, she told Warden Clapp she wanted so little to do with even Lottie's stuff that she decided to give it to their mother, and then their mother would send it to Lottie. But it isn't just clothes that Bernice doesn't want. Quote, I wish she would please not send me any more of her letters, and I don't want to hear from her again. She's always been so deceitful, I think is the word, with me all her life. I would rather not hear from her anymore. She's done nothing but cause trouble for the whole family all her life. End quote. Which doesn't... I mean, as far as we know, doesn't seem to necessarily be the case. Yeah. Finally, right before the new year, Warden Clapp received a letter about Lottie that actually was in her favor, written by her younger sister, Vinnie. Quote, Mr. Clapp, I love my sister who is in jail, and my heart really bleeds for her and her children. Perhaps there is nothing I can say that will be of any benefit to her, but just this I would like you to know. I don't want you to think I'm trying to uphold my sister in the wrong she has done. I realize she has done wrong, and she must pay according to the law for what she has done. My sister had a terrible life with Vivian with his drunken abuse also her children the same i suppose maybe i know as much as anyone because i live next door to them and i know what he has put her through he has used knives on her many times i know before she left him he threatened her time and time again and told her she could never have the children under any circumstances unless she took them over his dead body i have heard him tell her that many many times she was forced to leave him and her children both through his abuse. Um, he didn't have to be drunk to be that way. He was just born that way. My father was there at their place a while before they separated. Vivian got angry with that and chased him with an axe and tried to kill him. That is just the way he was. My sister should have never went back with him after she left him, but that is the only way he would let her see the children. He was living there with that other woman and kept Lottie agitated until hate just grew in her heart and caused her to do what she did. There isn't a better homemaker anywhere than my sister and a wonderful mother to her children if only the poor girl had half a chance. Please try to reconsider this matter for her sake and those poor children, end quote. So this is the first sort of evidence that we have that backs up Lottie's story. And she says, I was her next door neighbor. If anyone knew, it was me. 
So Lottie first applied for parole in the January 1951 session. This understandably was denied. She was also denied a year later in January 1952. For this session, C. Robert Yost, who was the Caldwell prosecuting attorney, wrote H.P. Fales, secretary of the Board of Corrections, saying, quote, This office will mention in the case of Elizabeth Lottie Lacey that this woman should, in the opinion of this office, serve her full life sentence in the state penitentiary. The facts of this case showing premeditation are entirely too clear, in my opinion, to allow any moves of pardon or commutation, end quote. A year later, as she applied for the April 1953 session, for which Canyon County prosecuting attorney C. Robert Yost again wrote recommending that clemency be denied. For the same session, Governor Len Jordan received a letter from Mrs. L.L. L. Pendergrass. This is Cassie Pendergrass, who lived in Caldwell since 1943, but I don't know what her connection is to the case. It may just be she was like a neighbor, kind of knew them. But she didn't have any major standing in Caldwell or anything yeah. like that. But her letter reads, quote, Dear Governor Jordan, I beg of you to use your influence against a pardon for Mrs. Elizabeth Lacey. I am also a member of the Four Square Gospel Church in Caldwell, but I am not in favor of Mrs. Lacey getting a pardon. Her crime is premeditated and I most certainly think she is right where she should stay. I feel that if Mrs. Lacey is entitled to a pardon, that Harry Orchard should have been pardoned years and years ago. He too accepted God and turned to religion, but he is still serving his time. I truly hope Mrs. Lacey is not granted the freedom, end quote. Wow. Yeah, which is kind of cool to see those those two cases overlap in a way you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Um, which also, I think, goes to show how well-known mm-hmm. Harry Orchard's case was oh, throughout. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the Jeez. crime took place in Caldwell. Um, so this is, some, you know, a case yeah. people there would have known. 47 years earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so this application was denied, of course, but probably not because of anything Mrs. Pendergrass had to say. Almost exactly proving her paternal aunt Mary Yuri wrong, Lottie's oldest daughter, Dallas, who was married to a man named Gary Barton by this time, wrote a letter to Warden Clapp saying, quote, I think my mother has learned her lesson and seemed to have changed a great deal. My sister Barbara really needs a mother. She has no permanent home and is being pushed from one place to another, and she longs for her to be out so they could be together. I'm sure if she were free that she could make a place for herself and my sister and we would be happy. I think she should have a chance to be free once again, end quote. Warden Clapp replied, telling her that according to Idaho law, she wouldn't be eligible for parole until she served at least 10 years. While she was in the women's ward, Lottie did pretty traditional work like cleaning, um, but was particularly skilled at cooking. The matron reported that she was, quote, very cooperative, a very good worker, that she has seldom complained about anything, even though her health in years past hasn't been very good, end quote. She applied again in 1955, and more letters were received pertaining to her. But this time, the pardon board received another familial letter in her favor from June 26. Quote, gentlemen, there is a matter that is of great concern to us, the aged parents of Mrs. Lottie L. Lacey. It is our understanding that she is to again come before the Honorable Board of Pardon. We earnestly request that your decision be tempered with mercy on her behalf. As you know, we were awful sorry for the offense committed by her, but we have never lost faith in Lottie and sincerely believe she can still make good. And I am sure she could be of great service and help to her family. And if it should be her wish in the event of a favorable decision by the board, she should come and take care of my aged mother at her home. If this plan meets with your approval and her wish awaiting your decision with much interest and concern, sincerely. There's no why. William and Elizabeth Hopkins, father and mother of Lottie Lacey. And this is written by her father and it's posted from Richfield, Utah. Of this application, Canyon County prosecuting attorney Lloyd C. McClintock wrote, quote, I have reviewed the file in the case and noticed a recommendation of the prosecutor at the time she was convicted to the effect that the murder she committed was cruel, premeditated, cold-blooded, and deliberate. And there was no extenuating circumstances and no leniency should be extended to her at that time or any time in the future. This office agrees with that notation and respectfully requests 
request the Board of Correction not to grant a pardon or commutation of sentence or to parole the subject, end quote. So her application was denied, not just because of the prosecuting attorney's letter, but probably because she had only served six years. Right. And I think that's interesting that she knows she can't get out for 10 years and yet she's continually applying and i don't know if that's to sort of always keep her on the forefront of their mind so when 10 years does come up they're like oh yeah you've been applying you've Mm -hmm. whatever i don't none of this makes sense so interestingly in early july 1955 the last hopkins ashdown marriage failed in a similar way to lottie's and vivian's lottie's sister milda was arrested on a charge of first degree murder after her husband raymond vivian's younger brother died of strychnine poisoning what yeah oh my god but it gets better according to the daily herald from provo utah milda reportedly quipped that the charge quote will be hard on the folks because i did the same thing my sister did end quote oh boy in that same article lottie and milda's father william who just days before had written to the idaho board of pardons asking that his second daughter be released from prison stated that it was quote the saddest situation i've ever seen i've done my best to raise my children in a proper manner if she's guilty she should pay a just penalty end quote unlike her sister milda went through a trial where the jury found her guilty of murder in the first degree but she like her sister was sentenced to life in prison milda tried to appeal her conviction to the highest court of the land but in 1958 the u.s supreme court upheld milda's conviction interesting development in december 1956 so you remember her older sister bernice who wrote the letter almost as soon as she entered prison that was just like i never want to hear from her ever again Well, it seems she had a change of heart because she asked to correspond with Lottie, even adding, quote, will I be permitted to send her some cigarettes and a small bottle of coffee for New Year's? Please let me know. Um, I sent her a Christmas box, end quote. And I have to wonder what made her change her mind. I don't know if it was because, you know, her younger sister also did it. And maybe there's some idea of like, maybe these Ashdowns are not this like clean cut family that everyone's making them out to be. I don't know. I think that's so odd that like she went from like, I never want to hear from her ever again to like, I would like to send her Christmas presents. I I don't know. So meanwhile, Lottie continued to apply to the Board of Pardons and was denied every time. In 1958, Lottie was examined by a psychiatrist because she was suffering from a quote unquote nervous condition. Lots of letters were received by Word and Clap in 1959, um, as it had at that point been 10 years since she first entered prison. On February 26th, there was a letter from a friend named Nora Palmer, quote, I've been sending the word of God in Sunday school papers and letters, trying to help her. And as I read her encouraging letters, and she has had a change of heart, and I believe she has a change now, she surely will do okay out. 10 years is a mighty long time, it just says might, uh, long time behind prison bars. I think how awful it must be and how many she has seen come and go, and yet she is still there. She's had many days and nights to repent of her crime. She seems so good, so kind. One wouldn't think she could have ever done what she did, but we don't know what tempted her. Maybe she suffered a lot with cruel treatment from the man she murdered. I never knew him, and I've only seen Beth once in my life, but I knew of her sisters, and Beth has been a real friend to me, and my heart goes out to her, and I believe everyone should have a chance. I pray this letter will touch the hearts of men, and they will have a heart of mercy to Beth Lacey, end quote. On March 13th, from her youngest daughter, quote, we, Arthur E. and Barbara D. Beatty, would consider it an honor if upon her release, she could come and live with us in Illinois, end quote. On March 14th, from her father in Richfield, and again, this is riddled with spelling errors, quote, I can assure you that if you will give Lottie a parole, she will make good. As I told you the time I meet with your board about five years ago of the great regrets and sorrow that acts for which she was sent up 
for it was the greatest crushing blow that ever came into my life. Surely I will do all that lies within my power to encourage her to begin a new life. I had told her she could have come and share the home with me. Her mother is an invalid and lives in Salt Lake City. I am 78 years old and not in too good health. I know the family will appreciate it very much if she's given another lease on life, as we all love Lottie and have confidence in her ability to make good. I await with great anxiety or anxiety uh, your favorable decision in her behalf, end quote. In her file, there are also two different petitions signed by lots of local residents asking for her release. The letter reading, quote, this petition is based on the fact that since her commitment to the state penitentiary, she has completely changed her thinking in way of life and has embraced religion and the further fact that her sister, Mrs. Vinnie Richards, has agreed to give her a home and see that she is provided for, end quote. The two petitions had 54 signatures, which is not a ton, but it shows that she does have some people on her side. It was signed by people from Payette to Caldwell to Emmett to Nampa to Boise and even Homedale and Middleton, where both she and, and Vivian had lived. Um, it's important to note that there's no date on either of these petitions, so I'm not sure if they were sent to the warden in 1959, but I did want to fit it in somewhere. Probably around this time, but it is hard to tell because there are no dates on it. Lottie received a letter from her youngest daughter, Barbara, who by these later years was married with a baby. Um, and this letter is really sweet. It says, quote, Dear Mama, we received your letter just yesterday and was happy to hear from you. Sorry I haven't wrote to you sooner, but been busy to write so many letters. No, we haven't been sick. We've been okay. Ricky is growing like a weed. He eats one oh. meal a day. Uh-huh. That is constantly just like his daddy he can say mommy he don't say that very much but he says oh daddy oh daddy he sure likes milk mama we will write to warden clap when it comes time don't you worry about that and about the train ticket i don't think we can manage it maybe if you could write to grandpa and uncle walter i will find out how much it is and then maybe they can help maybe we can help too but mama the way things are looking we are going to buy us a trailer house soon so i don't know well mama i've got to close for now and write some more letters lots of love ricky and swede Barbara. P.S. Don't worry about anything. We have a home and bed for you. We love you and we want you to come home. We will do all we can for you. Lots of love. Your kids. End quote. Yeah. So I just feel like this goes against that letter from her sister-in-law that says like even her kids were against her. Like and I guess they've had you know yeah 10 years to kind of deal with uh, it. But but I think if you were truly that upset with your mother and she was in prison for killing your father, you wouldn't be so willing to like write her such a loving letter. Yeah. But her parole was denied in the April 1959 session. As the October 1959 session was coming up, Warden Clapped received yet another letter from Lottie's father. Quote, I can say that as far as I can find out, it is the desire of the entire family to be given a release if the doctor says she is of sound and stable mind. She can share the home with me. Her mother resides in Salt Lake City, where she's been three years this coming April. Her mother is a cripple and has to get in a wheelchair. We are both on the old age assistance list and have no other source of income. But in case that Lottie is given her liberty, I could send her a ticket from Boise to Richfield, Utah, with a privilege of stopping off in Salt Lake to see her mother and five other members of the family. I do not think it would be advisable to let her linger in Idaho, where there would be danger of her coming into contact with anyone who may cause her trouble. I do hope if she is considered eligible for release that she will make good to society and all times henceforth lead an honorable, upright life. And I know she will if she will listen to counsel. I will try and give her, end quote. Her parole was also denied in 1960, where a new Caldwell prosecuting attorney, William J. Browner, wrote the Board of Pardons just saying, you know, we saw the prosecuting recommendation at the time of sentencing that there was no, you know, no leniency should be extended. We continue to agree with that. 
In July 1960, prior to that October 1960 meeting, her oldest daughter wrote another letter, quote, I'm writing in regard to my mother, Elizabeth Lacey. I've not heard from her for some time now. On my part, I haven't written like one should. But the other day, I was informed in a roundabout way that she had lost her mind and was sent to Blackfoot. If so, why were we not informed? There's nothing I can do, but if you will let us know... I have no possible means and ways to help one, end quote. And Warden Clapp replied saying, quote, she has not lost her mind as you are, are, are informed. Neither has she been sent to State Hospital South in Blackfoot. She seems to be getting along well as in the past and does not seem to have any unusual problems at the present time, end quote. Mm. Sadly, while Lottie was waiting to hear her fate from the Board of Pardons, her mother passed away at the Salt Lake County General Hospital after undergoing anesthesia for an infected gallbladder on August 27, 1960. Her mother was 76 at the time of her death and was buried in the town cemetery of Richfield. Of course, Lottie missed that funeral. Clapp received a letter written on April 3, 1962 from Maddie Spendlove, Lottie's maternal aunt, which said, quote, I am very much interested in her welfare. I would love to have her come and live with me if and when she can. I live alone in a nice two-bedroom home and would like very much to have her for company. I would do all I can for her to find employment. I am a licensed practical nurse and I'm quite active church member. I would do all I possibly can to help her rehabilitate herself, end quote. So Maddie was Elizabeth's younger sister, so her mother's younger sister, okay. who had been widowed in 1942 when her husband Lorenzo died in a car accident. This aunt was also willing to pay for some vocational school so that Lottie could get her nursing degree. So keep this letter in the back of your mind yeah. uh, for a few minutes. According to her file, Lottie was paroled to State Hospital South in Blackfoot on October 15, 1962, though no documents make clear as to why she was sent. A document to the hospital from Saul H. Clark, secretary of the Board of Corrections, stated only, quote, she was examined June 26, 1961 by Dr. Marlowe, who recommended a re-evaluation after another six months in the Idaho State Penitentiary. In August 1961, she was again examined by Dr. Shaw, and he recommended that she be sent to Blackfoot for further investigation, end quote. I wonder if this was because of the psychiatrist's recommendation mm -hmm. in 1958 that she be evaluated prior to her release, yeah. but I don't know why that would require her movement to the hospital. The prison authorities may have had some questions about her mental state because it seems like her emotions and remorse seem to have flattened out as she, quote, discusses the murder as if it were something that happened to somebody else, end mm -hmm. quote. But apparently while she was at the hospital, she was assigned to work as an attendant, helping to bathe and feed other patients and oh. said she enjoyed doing it. So it doesn't seem that she was there necessarily like, I mean, she was there for her own good, but yeah. she was doing service and, and yeah. helping other people. Kind of working as a trustee yeah. while being treated herself. Totally. Uh -huh. yeah. She returned to the penitentiary just a month later on November 19th because her behavior wasn't abnormal. She was cooperative while in the hospital and, quote, remained somewhat guarded, evasive, and participated to a limited extent in a group therapy session, end quote. And in fact, her, like, stay there was so uneventful that one report described her as, quote, stable and bland, <laughs> which yeah, that, is, that's a good it's a, it's a good description. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't describe me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am neither stable, stable nor bland. <laughs> so uh, Lottie appealed to the Board of Correction on October 1962, at which time the secretary and vice chairman voted to parole her, wow. but to the state hospital south. Okay. Uh, when she appeared before the board in November, just after her return, quote, Warden Clapp warned her never to threaten any of her family or bring any pressure on them to give her money, which she might feel as hers from the sale of real estate. If she did, she would be brought back immediately. She wants to go to her aunt in Seattle and to try to get a job cooking in a restaurant. She wants to be independent and make her own way, end quote. So, so he, he probably had conversations with the family who were yeah. worried. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, the, so it's interesting. The secretary and the vice chairman want to send her to the hospital. Warden Clapp is 
is willing to release her fully from the penitentiary. So finally, during this meeting of the Board of Corrections, she did receive an actual parole. And she was released from the penitentiary on December 21st, 1962. She served 13 years, 7 months, and 29 days of a life sentence. Now, Lottie holds a couple interesting places in women's ward history. Her time served is the third most time served by a woman behind Lida Southard, who was in for 19 years, and Mary Cremroy, who was in for 14 years. But as we know, she spent quite a bit of time in the hospital. Mm. And as I mentioned, she was the only woman to have been sentenced for murder in the first degree. Every other woman, including Lida Southard, Margaret Hardy, Alwilda Reams, and Verna Keller, who we've all covered, they all got second degree. Lottie was paroled to Washington because her Aunt Maddie was willing to take responsibility for her and because, quote, it was the opinion of the board that she should not return to her parents, who are now residing in Utah, or her daughters who live in Idaho, or to any of her people who live in the vicinity, end quote. Her time in Washington was kind of unclear. She found a home with a man named T.G. Doliff in Bellevue, Washington, where she worked as a housekeeper for $200 a month plus room and board. Oh. She probably lived with him not because she didn't want to live with her aunt, but probably because that was part of her employment. Mm -hmm. And so it gave her an opportunity to save up more money. And so she began to be able to put money in savings. According to a supervision summary report from her Washington parole officer in September 1963, she had saved up nearly $500 in the bank. She was saving money to start taking a licensed practical nursing course at the Edison Vocational School, a school in Seattle designed for high school graduates hoping to train in technical fields. She reported to her parole office regularly and was entirely cooperative. Her parole officer stated, quote, It is my opinion she has received the optimum benefit of supervision. She is anxious to know when she would be released from active supervision, end quote. On January 1st, 1963, Lottie wrote a letter to Warden Clapp herself, and it says, quote, Dear Mr. Clapp, Happy New Year! Mr. Clapp, I'm writing to get my work records from you. I was just called out to the Employment Security Department office. They had a good cook's job there for me, and they will place me on it if I can get my working information from you. They want to know if I'm a good cook and baker, and if I am dependable. I've been looking for work for two weeks. I am anxious to go to work. Thank you very much. Yours very truly, Elizabeth L. Lacey, end quote. Warden Clapp replied, I am happy to hear you are getting along so well, end quote. He then went on to say any records from the penitentiary would show that she had been incarcerated. So he suggested she get the same information from the parole officer as he would have similar information as to her experience of working as a cook in the prison without all the stigma that comes with the fact that she had been incarcerated. Yeah. On January 12th, 1964, the Board of Corrections voted she be released from active supervision and instead to report to the Board of Corrections once a year. Clearly, she had behaved incredibly well on her parole. She remained on this form of parole for another four years and was finally granted a final discharge on May 24th, 1968. From the day she was arrested to the day she was released from parole, uh, it totaled 19 years, one month, and six days. So she spent nearly 20 years of her life under police supervision. Interestingly, in 1969, Warden Virgil Carey received a letter from Francis X. Bush asking details on Lottie's case, quote, to use in connection with a manuscript I'm preparing for publication, end quote. So Francis X. Bush was a criminal and civil trial lawyer in the first half of the 20th century, who after his retirement began publishing legal textbooks and popular books about sensational 20th century trials, including the Sacco Vanzetti case, um, which for those of you who don't know, it was a case against two anarchist Italian immigrants who were accused of murdering two people during a robbery in Massachusetts, which led to their execution seven years after the trial. It was a big sort of to do about immigration, anarchy, socialism. There were a lot of sort of issues tied up in that case. 
And then he also uh, reported on the trial of Bruno Richard Hupman, who was accused of kidnapping and murdering Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. in 1935. I couldn't find any Bush publications published after 1969, which is when he wrote The Warden, so I'm not sure what this book would have been about. Mm -hmm. And besides, Warden Carey replied saying, quote, it is the policy of the Idaho Board of Correction that information on any inmate of the Idaho State Penitentiary or on parole and discharge is given only to other penitentiaries, court, and law enforcement agencies, end quote. Mm -hmm. Still, this seems to indicate that Lottie's case made national headlines and caused a sensation even 20 years after it was all over, and especially when considered in conjunction with the fact that her younger sister was found guilty of the exact same crime against a member of the same family, which is still so crazy. Likely, while in Washington, she met a man named Ivan Leroy Morlock. Ivan was a World War II veteran who was discharged from duty after spending time in an army hospital suffering from an unspecified disease he'd had prior to his enlistment. He was born in Oregon, pleaded guilty in Arizona for grand larceny in 1938 after stealing a car when he was 21 years old, but was given a suspended sentence on the stipulation he returned to Washington. He had been married twice, but he did not have any kids as far as I could tell, and his second wife had died in 1965. Not sure when Ivan and Lottie married, because there are no records of their marriage anywhere. No government records, no newspapers, nothing. But the Iron County record from Iron County, Utah in June 1980 lists them as Mr. and Mrs. Ivan Morlock from Toppenish, Washington. So they were married prior to that. Uh, the couple lived in Washington for most of their married life, as far as I could tell. But at some point in the early 1990s, they moved to Salt Lake City. Ivan passed away on March 17, 1995, and was buried at the Utah State Veterans Memorial Park in Bluffdale, Utah. Lottie lived for another four years, dying on May 8, 1999. She was 88 years old. Wow. And she is buried next to Ivan in the Utah State Veterans Cemetery. So that is the long and convoluted case yeah. of Elizabeth Lottie Lacey, number 7610, the only female inmate who was ever in for first-degree murder. What a story. And oh. I think that's the longest episode I've ever done. That's a crazy story, yeah. guy. And then I want to know what happened to her sister. And yeah. Then, yeah. It whoa. was uh, that when I stumbled upon that, I was like, are you absolutely kidding me? Yeah. And then the fact that there was even another marriage that had ended in divorce. I'm sure that brother was like, well, I'm sure glad divorce was how my marriage yeah. ended because it did not end well for his brothers, wow. which I don't know. I guess I don't know what she was like, what the sister was expecting would yeah. happen yeah right it's the same exact crime no deviation not even a different kind of poison she just was like worked for my sister i guess it'll work for me too which is yeah. oh it's so odd and every letter just contradicts the other that's it i i'm sorry i was just like are you sure or is she just saying all of this well that's stuff? and so then like, i would like read another letter that yeah. was just like are you sure are they just saying it like oh my god i had a headache just reading that i'm sure i had multiple headaches writing that but Anna has always been very special to me because she did make something of herself. The same way that Lacey made something of herself. Lacey went to, went to school and went to Seattle. And after she had earned money enough by taking dollars of an elderly gentleman, she went into LPN school. And she graduated as an LPN and went to work in one of the hospitals in Seattle. And while she was there, a patient came in who was in DT at a hospital. And the patient happened to be a man who was held in Idaho State Penitentiary death row for a year. And they had to let him go. They had to let him go because there was no corporate selection. They could never find the body. And so she was his nurse. And later, 
they became very good friends and they married. And uh, apparently they had several good years, but he was one of these kind of people who had physical depression. And so he got really depressed one day and went down and bought a bit of whiskey, went over to his mother's house, she lived in Seattle, I mean Seattle. And he stood in the kitchen floor and chuckled at and dropped dead. His heart couldn't take it. don't think yours is uh, any less depressing. It is not. So let's, Great let's hear today. it. Okay. So today I am talking about Noah Arnold, number 3301. My sources are, of course, his inmate file held at the Idaho State Archive, Idaho Daily Statesman from NewsBank, Library of Congress, Chronicling America, Digitized Newspapers, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com. I referenced the book Hanged by mm-hmm. Kathy Dinehard Hill, which is available in our gift shop. Mm-hmm. And Kathy was so gracious, she actually gave us all of the binders of research that mm. she used for all of the write-ups she did in that nice. book. So if you're interested in capital punishment in Idaho, it has every mm-hmm. hanging that's been mm-hmm. documented in our state. All of those people have been written about. So check mm-hmm. it out. And I checked out a Kentucky Historic Institution's article on the Kentucky House of Reform. So Noah Arnold's story is difficult to tell. Uh, He told authorities different stories about his life at every institution that he served time in, and he used several aliases. The one that he used the most, that's most documented, is Robert Ford. Mm. He also had like Jack Ford and probably many that we don't even know about. If records are correct, Noah Arnold was born in Lowell, Kentucky on February 14th, 1892 to Clayton and Mary Ann Arnold. His parents, if the records are correct, were married actually on December 30th, 1868. Whoa. Yeah. And I found it strange that they didn't have children for nearly 20 years. And so... Unfortunately, the 1890 census records mm-hmm. were destroyed, so mm-hmm. those would be the ones that would kind of really de- tell us. But right. uh, I found another Clayton and Mary Ann Arnold in the 1880 census, and they had six children, four oh. daughters, and two sons, ranging from one to ten years old. And then in the 1910 census, the Arnold family was described as mulatto, mm-hmm. and Noah had an older brother named Clayton Jr., born around 1885, and a younger sister named Betty, born around 1897. Okay. So he potentially could have been like number eight oh, wow. of nine or ten kids. Right. Noah told some authorities that he had a sixth grade education and others that the only education he received was from his mother. He told authorities that he attended the Baptist church when he could as a child. And if Noah was around the eighth child born to Clayton and Mary, he may not have had a lot of supervision. Yeah. And again, I have to say that this is an African-American family that mm-hmm. his parents may have been born slaves, like probably around when they were born in mm-hmm. Kentucky. And so mm-hmm. unfortunately, we don't have direct record of this, but right. we can we can guess. Mm-hmm. And just the prejudice in his life and his upbringing and throughout his entire life. Mm-hmm. And we'll see some of the pretty horrific things that he experienced. So you said the first record you found was 1868 for their marriage. Yeah, a Clayton Arnold to and then, a Mary And then Anne. the second one, yeah. you, there wasn't one, but like there was another family that had six kids by 1880. 1880, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, in, if we had that 1890, right. we might have, yeah, but the next one... Though um, I, so I wonder, depending on 
how old they were if the second family is correct, the 1880s. Yeah, yeah they probably would have been born in the 1850s, though I guess it depends. Yeah, probably. Though I wonder if they were moved from somewhere else. If right, they, you yeah. Know. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's so, it just reminds us that like slavery was not that long ago. It like wasn't. we can talk yeah. about inmates who he was, you know, he served in here in the in the 20th century and his mm. parents were born perhaps under slavery. Like, yeah. it wasn't long ago. Yeah. As I said, he may not have had a lot of supervision. And around the age of 14, he had his first run-in with the law. And I couldn't find any newspaper articles, but according to prison records and letters between authorities, Noah Arnold was convicted of grand larceny and sentenced to two years in the Greendale, Kentucky House of Reform on March 14, 1906. According to the Kentucky Historic Institution's website, the House of Reform was established in 1897 and sat on about a 200-acre tract. And the boys and girls ages 8 to 21 were sent to the institution and worked on the farm and in the quarry. They were often treated to whippings, time in the hole, and chained to 35-pound weights. Yikes. And so this is like Kentucky's version of St. Anthony. Exactly. Yikes. Yeah. The Kentucky Historical Society has many photos actually digitized of the reformatory mm. and includes several of the black children making brooms and sitting in classrooms. And an mm. article in the Kentucky Post and Times Star from October 16, 1908, titled, Cruelty Charge is Made by Lads. Inmates of Greendale Reform School brought to Covington to testify tell stories of brutal treatment at hands of older boys in the institution. These two 16-year-old boys actually told authorities they were repeatedly beaten and hazed by older boys. Mm. Quote, they went through what they called hazing, beating us with clubs and whips. They never stopped beating us. And each day the older boys pick on us little fellows. When the instructors or managers of the school protest against the treatment, they are pounced on by the large boys and badly treated. Mm. We did not get enough to eat. And you see, I have no socks on my feet. It gets awful cold sometimes, and we have to work very hard, end quote. So this is, you know, right when he's there, these boys are saying this is happening. Right. And I found several articles about these young teenagers being addicted to cocaine <sighs> around this time while in this reform school. And I also found many escapes from the institution. Mm. Noah apparently escaped from the House of Reform on December 30th, 1908. Mm. Again, I spent hours going through kentucky and lexington kentucky mm -hmm. newspapers trying mm -hmm. to find any mention of this escape but I, I couldn't find it anywhere also i think it's funny it's called the house of reform like the house of blues like it's a concert <laughs> menu yeah. except it's horrible yeah he was he was actually caught soon after jumping trains in memphis tennessee mm -hmm. and he spent 30 days in jail and was fined 25 dollars so he's about 16 17 at this okay. time he stayed out of trouble until 1912 when he was caught breaking into a storehouse in Paris, Kentucky on January 8, 1912 with a partner named Will Burley. They broke into the store of J.W. Mallory by prying open the door to the store with a crowbar and they stole razors, knives, cigars, tobacco, clothing, a 22 caliber rifle, along with several other articles. Mm. Will was arrested and questioned. He had a bit of a record, and so authorities went to him first, mm -hmm. and he folded and confessed to the crime and implicated Noah. When officers arrived at Noah's home, they knocked at the door. They, quote, were met at the door by Arnold, who flourished a revolver and showed a fight, end quote. Authorities actually pounced on him. They disarmed him and handcuffed him. 
He refused to admit that he was guilty, and the police chief asked how many times the shirt he was wearing had been washed, and Noah responded, only once. Quote, Chief Brown examined the shirt and found that a tag had just been torn from it. He displayed this fact to the prisoner who, seeing he was caught, confessed and told the detectives where to find his share of the stolen property. All of the goods were recovered, end quote. I mean, the very definition of do your own time, do your own number. Snitches get stitches. Right. <laughs> and, you know, don't be wearing the stolen yeah. goods. Yeah. Right. Don't, just don't steal. On April 19, 1912, he arrived at the Kentucky State Reformatory at Frankfort, Kentucky, with a one to five year sentence for burglary in the second degree and given the number 3377. According to a report written by Kentucky State Reformatory Warden T.M. Pythian in 1919, Noah's, quote, prison record while here was bad, having been punished a number of times for fighting, refusing to work, etc., which prolonged his stay in this prison, end quote. Noah was paroled on February 18, 1915. The next mention I found for him came around Christmas time, so he spent about three years okay. there. So this next one comes in Christmas time, 1915. On December 23, 1915, a man named Edwin Phelps, a clothing store salesman from Covington, Kentucky, was shot on the street through the abdomen, quote, the bullet striking the abdomen, cutting the bowels in 18 places. Oh, my gosh. One bullet, 18 places? Yeah, so like his, like intestines, I'm imagining, bullet just tearing through his intestines. Oh, my gosh. The suspect, of course, was Noah Arnold. Governor Stanley offered a $200 reward for the capture of Noah Arnold. Edwin survived, but was in and out of the hospital for years after the shooting, and I couldn't find any reference to Noah actually being recaptured. Mm. He most likely left Kentucky and headed to Illinois, where he later told authorities that he worked for uh, Charles Sherman as a bartender in Chicago, Illinois. According to records, he was arrested there for suspicion of murder, but released, and mm. I couldn't find dates or any mm-hmm. mention of this. And was this suspicion of murder for the Kentucky one, or right. is this a different one in Chicago? Mm. There are so many questions, and I <laughs> am very sleepless <laughs> from all the digging I've done on yeah, this. Yeah, I get that. According to files, he was arrested in Staples, Minnesota, in June 1916 for suspicion of riding trains, and he was actually given hours to leave town. Whoa. Also, I love that charge, suspicion of riding trains, which I know it means, like, hopping train cars, but, like, the idea that someone would be arrested and be like, how dare you? How dare you want to ride that train? So suspicious. (laughs) So suspicious. I love trains. (laughs) Soon after, he was arrested in Missoula, Montana, and according to the Missoulian newspaper on June 27, 1916, he was given a suspended sentence, quote, upon promise to get busy, end quote. Oh. So he's basically like, stop jumping yeah. trains. Right. Like, get go, out of yeah, town. Do or, something with your life. Exactly. Yeah. Or get busy. So he boarded another train and he headed to Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> he said, you didn't say what I had to do with my <laughs> life. Right. <laughs> a massive shipping strike was actually going on down the Pacific Coast during the summer of 1916 as union workers wanted better paying conditions. And I found stories of several violent interactions mm. that occurred in the Milwaukee dock that summer, including one on June 2nd with the title, Heads Cracked in Riot, Kidnapped Non-Union Workers Left on Beach After Severe Beating, Warned to return at peril of lives. Oh. Yeah, it was a very intense yeah. article. Several strike breakers, or scabs, oh, was as he you a call scab? Them, were assaulted. Oh. 
and shot on the dock that year. Oh, no. Union leaders said that 200,000 men were on strike, and it led to these deadly confrontations. In early September 1916, an African-American strikebreaker was shot and killed in one of the dock buildings after he got into an argument with some of the Union men. His body was found the next morning. Just a few days before Noah got into his trouble, a vehicle full of strikebreakers was chased down by two vehicles filled with Union men. One of the strike breakers, actually fearing that they would be pulled over, stopped, and killed, pulled out a gun, and while they were driving and being chased, he fired wildly, unloaded his pistol into the pursuing vehicles. Fortunately, he didn't strike them, but he did pop one of the tires, which, like, you know, spun him out. It was one of those classic things and probably saved his life. Uh, They did get arrested. Uh, He did get in a little bit of trouble. The union men said they were just having a little peaceful protest chasing after these strike breakers. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of scary stuff going on, but the freight needed to be processed. So the dock took anyone who would risk working there, which is a fantastic scene and an easy place for Noah to find a job that mm-hmm. summer. I don't know exactly when he began working there, but on September 29th, 1916, He was employed at this Milwaukee dock under the name Robert Ford. Hmm. Some listeners who love stories of the Old West might recognize the name Robert Ford as the outlaw who killed Jesse James by shooting him in the back and collecting the reward on his life. Uh, Robert Ford was actually killed the year that Noah Arnold was born in 1892. Noah maybe wanted to emulate him and, Hmm. and... possibly took this name because of this. Ooh, interesting. I don't know. Just, just... Sure, speculation. Yeah, just speculation. But I was like, huh, that's interesting. On September 29th, Noah was playing a game of craps with a fellow dock worker, a fellow scab named Phil Rucker. And they got into an argument over the game, and Noah pulled out his thirty-eight revolver and began firing. He missed Phil, but was arrested and charged with assault. And at first, he told authorities he would plead guilty to assault in the second degree, but when he heard the potential jail time, he changed his mind at the last minute, asked for an attorney, and he agreed Mm. to plead guilty to third-degree assault and was handed six months in the county jail. Mm. He served 30 days, all of October 1916, and was released in November. In the document from Deputy Joshua Hopkins from Tacoma, Washington, about this time, he noted, quote, It was rumored that he was wanted in Chicago, Illinois, for murder. We have nothing authentic regarding this, end quote. Hmm. So they knew that this guy might be this murderer that they're looking for Hmm. over here in the Midwest, but they let him go after 30 days. Can you imagine living in a time where you could just be someone else? No, I can't. Like, we can't (laughs) do that now. But it it is... it happened so much more recently than we think. Like, yeah. you could just Disappear. leave town uh-huh. and pop up with a brand new name and a brand new story. Yeah. And, like, you're someone entirely different. I would like to try it once. <laughs> not not now, but back then. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that would be too hard. Yeah. So, according to records, right after he's released, he shoots at a woman and skips town. And he goes to Seattle, Washington. So mm-hmm. he doesn't even go that far. And he gets to start a new life. Like, he's released from jail after a shooting scrap with sure. this guy. Goes to jail for 30 days. Shoots at another woman. I, I couldn't find any record of this either. So mm-hmm. there's it's kind of mm-hmm. be written up somewhere. Yeah. But 
Then he skips town and goes to Seattle. There were so many little shootings and holdups mm-hmm. from African-American men oh, around this time right. that, like, the stories that I, I saw, I was I like, any nuts. of these could have been Noah. Yeah. He met a woman named Mabel Bell in Seattle. She had a boyfriend named Harry Aggie, but Mabel still invited Noah back to her house to stay, apparently, until he got situated in town. And on January 4th, 1917, when Harry returned home from work around 11 that night, he wasn't happy to see uh, Robert Ford alone with his girlfriend in the room. He yelled at Mabel and asked what Noah was doing there, or Robert was doing there. And according to Noah, as Mabel responded, Harry punched her in the mouth. (gasps) Noah ran out the door and said Harry chased after him with a razor. Quote, as Ford went out the door, Harry Aggie called him a bad name, and Ford, when he got to the stairs, turned and said to Aggie, what is that you called me? Thereupon, he pulled out a gun and without waiting for an answer, shot and killed Harry Aggie, end quote. So prosecutors would note that regardless of if Harry had a razor, which they didn't find one near his mm. body, Noah was, quote, very quick on the trigger, yeah. that he shot before there was any reasonable apprehension of danger. Ford is the sort of, this is their language, Negro, who carries a gun and flourishes it upon the slightest provocation and is altogether too willing to shoot, end quote, which we've seen yeah. just, you know, right. three months prior. Yeah. So... Noah, as Robert Ford, is arrested. He pleads not guilty, but is found guilty and sentenced to the Washington State Reformatory in Monroe, Washington, for manslaughter on February 11th, 1917, under the alias Robert Ford. And this is what's so interesting, is that he has committed a whole laundry list of crimes and served time in jail and prison and reformatory, but he gets to Washington. He's got a different name. No Mm -hmm. one knows all those crimes. And so he just gets to go to a reformatory instead of to prison where he probably belonged. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll, we'll see that here in a minute. (laughs) So he's given number two, one, nine, seven. We have his intake and it notes that he was five feet, seven and five eighths inches tall. He had a medium build. He had black kinky hair, brown, dark eyes, medium, dark Negro complexion, his Brutian measurements, a note about his face being medium and a straight nose and a large vaccination scar on his left arm, a cut on his left forefinger between his first and second joints, a cut on his forehead above his right and left eyebrows, and a cut on his chin. He told authorities he was from New Orleans, Louisiana, and the prosecuting attorney noted that Noah or Robert Ford was, quote, altogether too handy with a gun, end quote. He was a nuisance to guards and the administration. He was reprimanded several times for smoking, including once for, quote, smoking in a cell and asking Bert to pass a cigarette to some other prisoner. <laughs> so he's just, like passing around a cigarette. <laughs> the final straw came a day before Thanksgiving on November 28, 1917, when a riot erupted in the dining hall at the reformatory. Quote, the trouble started as the 200 reformatory inmates assembled at the dining room tables. At a shouted signal, the conspirators began to hurl cups and dishes at the two attendants present and to overturn tables, end quote. Guards rushed in, and an all-out brawl erupted. In the end, prisoners destroyed equipment and furniture worth about $300 in property Whoa. damage that they did to this dining hall. 
And that's this is a 1917 money, so that's, that's a pretty lot. good amount of money. Yes. The riot was actually blamed on German alien and IWW prisoners <laughs> who likely plotted the riot in defiance to what the prison was calling meatless and wheatless meal days as World War One was mm. in full effect and food was being rationed for soldiers. I love that that's, like, it very well could have not been those, but right. those are the easiest scapegoats in yeah. this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I It was, like, instantly. Makes total it like, sense. It's got to be the Germans yep. and the Wobblies. Yep. Yeah, the communists. So. Yep. <laughs> Noah noted that he was in the dining room during the riot, but he didn't take part. He definitely didn't yep. hurl anything. Who would want to participate in a riot? Not this guy. He doesn't like to get involved in throwing things or shooting projectiles. No, it's not his thing. No, no. Regardless, he and 18 others were actually ordered transferred to the state penitentiary with three years added to their minimum terms. A document from the superintendent Clarence Long about Noah's case noted that, quote, His transfer was made to this institution on account of the state law, which provides that anyone who has served a term in any penal institution is not considered amiable to reformatory methods and must be transferred to the penitentiary. When he was sentenced to the reformatory, the judge was not aware of the fact that he had previously served a term in the state reformatory of Kentucky. And it was not until some months after he had arrived at Monroe that they ascertained that he had served this term in Kentucky, end mm. quote. So his records are starting to finally yeah, catch up creep to up. him. Noah Arnold, as Robert Ford, arrived at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla on December 5th, 1917. The prognosis was not looking good for him, changing and reforming his criminal ways. He was given the new number of 8432, his intake index card, which actually looks a lot like ours mm. in Idaho around this time, noted that he was serving a crime for manslaughter. He was 25 years old. They described his complexion as chocolate, listed, oh. yeah, listed his occupation as laborer, and said he was born in Alabama. Mm. In 1919, after two years of his sentence, he wrote a note to the yard captain that said, quote, this is so-called... Robert Ford. My right name is Noah Arnold. I have a brother at Cartersville, Kentucky, named Clayton Arnold, and my father is also named Clayton Arnold. He lives in Lowell, Kentucky, where I was born in 1892 from Robert Ford, right name of Noah Arnold. End quote. It's a very difficult note to read, but he admits his identity, and authorities started to piece together this criminal career, which started way back when he was 14 years old in 1906. Why do you think he did that? I don't know. Is it like conscience catching up with him? Because like, again, if you have the ability to just disappear and become a completely new person, why would you not take advantage of that? I, you know, I'm not sure because it's Mm -hmm. around this time, April 1st, 1919, he's actually committed to the Eastern State Hospital for the insane at Medical Lake Washington for observation and treatment. So I don't know if this note came before or after this time. And it's not noted in his records how long he was at the hospital or what type of treatment he received. I did find a record that his mother died also that Mm. year in 1919. Maybe that had some sway on it. Maybe he Mm. wanted to know what was going on with his family. Mm, Um, uh, His father died on April 3rd, 1920, and Noah's brother Clayton Jr. took care of the family's business and was given $1,600 from his father's will. So 
you know, maybe his brother had found him. Maybe he had yeah. sent a letter to his family or right. I don't, I'm not I wonder, sure what was so, going on here. So his brother came into $1,600? It was just a document of will that was on Ancestry that I saw. Oh, okay. Yeah. So after his father's death. But, but like, does, would he have any claim to that? And I don't believe so. Okay. Because yeah. I was like, maybe that's why he's writing is to say yeah. like, I'm here, I'm alive. I need a cut of this money. Which, I mean, could be. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say. Yeah. yeah. So Noah asked to be brought up before the pardon board and was paroled on December 12, 1921. He continued to fill out his regular parole slips through 1922, and he was released from parole from the Washington State Penitentiary on January 4, 1923 for this murder. Mm. And during that time, he had been a porter in a barber shop in Spokane and it appeared that he was doing really well. Then he disappears. He was missing until 1923 when he made his final mistake. He met up with his friend that he made at the Walla Walla State Penitentiary named Mike Donnelly, who he had served time with. If you want to hear more about Mike Donnelly, check out our Stool Pigeon Saturday this last weekend from (laughs) Suzanne Squires. It'll fill you in on his wild story and how these two came together. Noah and Mike met up in Shelby, Montana, where their spree began. On July 4th, 1923, they held up a man in a boxcar on the Great Northerner coming from Shelby to Sandpoint, Idaho. They intended to go to Plains, Montana, where Mike said he had a cache of silver stashed from a bank robbery he had committed earlier that June. On July 16, 1923, Noah Arnold and Mike Donnelly walked up to a grocery store in Hope, Idaho. The store was closed and locked, but the owner was inside cleaning up with an acquaintance of his. They knocked, and the owner, William Crisp, came to the door and asked what the two African-American men needed. For listeners, Hope is in Bonner County in northern Idaho on the northeastern shore of Lake Ponderay, about 12 miles from Sandpoint, Idaho. It looks, like, so beautiful. I really Mm -hmm. want to go visit. Mm -hmm. William Crisp just to give his backstory, he was born in Missouri on March 20th, 1873, and he and his wife actually moved to Hope, Idaho in 1903 and had three children. Uh, William ran the pool hall and confectionery store there in mm. Hope. So, you know, this this great little grocery oh, store. Yeah. And that evening, the postmaster of Hope, his name was James Campbell, he was in the store with William and just kind of hanging out with him as he was closing up for the day. So Noah and Mike asked if they could buy a loaf of bread. So William unlocked the door, and as soon as the door budged, Noah and Mike pushed their way in with their revolvers pointed. They told William and James to put their hands up, and they held them at gunpoint. Noah went after William Crisp, telling him, Get him higher or I'll bore you. He began reaching to pull William's gold watch out of his pocket. William turned to hit Noah to stop him, and Noah fired. William Crisp fell to the ground and screamed, I'm dead! I'm dead! Mike Donnelly attempted to fire at William Crisp as well, but his gun misfired. James, seeing his moment, jumped on the back of Mike Donnelly, and Mike turned and hit James in the head with the butt of his gun. James slumped to the ground, and Mike aimed the gun and fired at the unconscious man. But he missed. With the two men knocked out and dying... He missed an unconscious man. He did, I think. I mean, Providence is what saved that man. Saved his life, yeah. So while these two were unconscious and dying, laying on the ground, Noah and Mike ransacked the store. Uh, While they were busy, James Campbell, the postmaster, actually came to, and he slipped out of the store and hid in the shadows until he saw Noah and Mike rush out the shop and head towards the railroad. 
James Campbell called a doctor who immediately called the police. Noah and Mike went under the Pack River Bridge and followed a route away from the river. Posses were after them. So they doubled back to the river and waited downstream to lose the trail as they heard the hounds Mm. howling as they sniffed their trail. They went through some brush and laid low on Odin Hill along the shore of Lake Ponderay, east of Kootenai. You can still hike the Odin Bay Trail around Lake Ponderay today. They climbed to the top of Odin Hill and watched as several posses gathered and circled and searched for them. They hid out over a week together. They split the money, and Noah stitched $111 into the lining of the sleeve of his jacket above his shoulders. William was sent to the hospital in Spokane, Washington, where he died the next morning. Mm. Police began interrogating every African-American man from Washington to Montana. So just rounding up any African-American man and intense interrogation. A $250 reward was actually put out for both of them. Few men attended William Crisp's funeral because most of them were still in these vigilante mm. squads looking for these murderers. On July 25th, nine days after the holdup and murder, Noah Arnold bought a train ticket and boarded a Great Northern train heading to Washington. One of the agents, a former guard at the Washington State Penitentiary, immediately <sighs> recognized Noah Arnold. He was quoted saying, quote, When the Negro boarded my train... I became suspicious because of his apparent nervousness and for the reason that he fitted the description of the smaller Hope Bandit. I accused him of being one of the fugitives, and he seemed frightened. When the train reached Sandpoint, I telephoned to the sheriff's office, and a woman answered and said, All the men in the forest were in the country seeking the Negroes. I then telephoned the chief of police, receiving the same information. I wired ahead to Newport, and he turned the man over to Deputy Sheriff N.E. Pollock, who met the train, end quote. Of course, this is language from that time. Noah was arrested. He was brought back to Sandpoint, and under intense interrogation, he actually cracked and told the whereabouts of Mike Donnelly, but he lied about his involvement in the shooting. The people of Hope and Sandpoint were not going to take it. The sheriff let the townspeople take Noah out of the jail. In one of the darkest moments, Noah was surrounded by hundreds of people out for blood with a noose around his neck. In front of the lynch mob, he admitted that he had done the shooting. The sheriff had the noose loosened around his neck, and he was handcuffed and brought back to the jail. There's apparently a photo of this mob that has been lost to time, which is just just horrific. Again, this is time that lynchings are are so common i mean particularly in south but uh, i would imagine against any african-americans who had done any any sort of wrong against anyone in in, in any town that that's like so terrifying that there is no way to even imagine that Mm -hmm. so horrible on july 29th mike donnelly was captured and arrested threats of hanging both men rang out in the community so much so that the sheriff had the men transferred to the kootenai county jail in coeur d'alene The two men, they were looking at the gallows as their punishment, either legally or by a lynch mob. Uh, Both insisted their innocence, but when the forty-five caliber bullets were taken out of the body of William Crisp, it damned Noah Arnold, whose revolver was a forty-five caliber. Hmm. On August 4th, they were brought back to Sandpoint, where they pled not guilty. On September 10th, Noah requested an attorney, and A.T. Aronson was appointed to him. 
After conferring with the attorney, Noah was encouraged to plead guilty to the charge with the hope that the judge would provide him a life sentence. Mm. He pled guilty to murder in the first degree on September 12th. In reviewing the case, the judge refused to use the confession extracted from the lynch bob as evidence in the trial. Hmm. So he only used the one he, he gave in the police station. That's that's fair, though. Like, I'm mm-hmm. glad to hear that. Yeah. On September 15th, 1923, Judge W.F. McNaughton sentenced Noah Arnold to hang. Quote, It is the judgment of the law and of this court that you, the said Noah Arnold, alias Robert Ford, be taken hence to the county jail of Bonner County, thence to the state penitentiary of Idaho, where you shall be confined until November 1st, 1923, and you shall then and there suffer the death penalty in the manner provided by law, end quote. So, two months, September 15th, 1923, to November 1st, he would be hanged. Mike Donnelly was seen as an accessory to murder and given a life sentence. Noah's lawyer immediately filed an appeal and called for the court to set aside the judgment and permit Noah to withdraw his guilty plea and enter a plea of not guilty. And the application notes Idaho's felony murder charge that the death penalty is an option in cases where a person is killed during the commission of felonies such as, quote, arson, rape, robbery, burglary, or mayhem, end quote, but calls the court's death sentence an abuse of the court's discretion, particularly when a person pleads guilty. So basically they're saying a jury should mm-hmm. call for the death penalty. Mm-hmm. A judge shouldn't be able to do this. Right. But that's not what the law even mm, says. A judge can do that. Okay. So his intake, Noah Arnold, number 3301, alias Robert Ford, received September 17th, 1923 from Bonner County, murder in the first degree, sentenced to hang on November 1st, 1923. 31 years old, born on February 14th, 1892 in Lowell, Kentucky. He's a laborer. They described his complexion as yellow, and he had black hair and dark brown eyes. Oh, interesting. Yellow because he's mixed race. I think so, yeah. He was single and without any children. His father died when he was 27, and his mother died when he was 26. He left home at 16, so he clearly knew that his parents died. That's that's the only thought is from this intake that maybe he knew. He left home at 16. He considered himself Baptist and attended Sunday school and still considered himself a member of that church. He could read and write and had a sixth grade education. He drank moderately. His closest relatives were his brother Clayton Arnold in Kentucky and his sister, Mrs. Emma Mason in Ohio. His build was regular. His teeth were good. He wore a size nine boot, had $11.25 in cash and a $100 check on him when he arrived. Wow. Yeah. That's actually quite a bit of money. I, I know, I thought so too. And maybe it was from his time in the barber shop and mm. kind of carried over. In many documents talking about Noah, they note that he is a habitual criminal. The prosecuting attorney said, quote, regard this prisoner as an habitual criminal, a man who makes crime his business. I feel that justice will be done by the execution of this man. I have studied the case from every angle and believe that I am more fully acquainted with the facts than any other person who has officially come in contact with the case, and I can see no reason why any clemency in any form should be extended in this case, end quote. Noah Arnold attempted to change his plea and even contacted the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement for Colored People. So he, he actually got mm-hmm. his sentence, a stay put on his oh, okay. execution, and the execution was scheduled for December of 1924. So in November 1924, a month before his execution, on November 17th, he wrote this letter to the NAACP to Charlie Young from the 
Pocatello chapter. Mm-hmm. It was a, a pretty young organization yeah, yeah. at this time. And he recounted the crime and insisted that the holdup was staged by Mike Donnelly. Quote, Afterwards, I was captured and put in jail. And four days after being put in jail, the sheriff, William Kirkpatrick, taken me out in the woods to a mob where I was strung up by the neck and a confession extricted from me and which the confession was changed by this mob and fixed the way they wanted it and used against me during the court trial. The judge furnished me and my companion a lawyer each, and my attorney advised me to plead to first-degree murder with the understanding that he would get me at a prison sentence and telling me that there was no law in the state of Idaho where the judge alone could impose the extreme penalty. End quote. But also that isn't what happened, right? Like he said, you know, that that confession was used against me in court and the sheriff is the one who brought me out right. there. But from what we heard, the sheriff is the one who brought him back to this jail cell and the judge didn't use that, right, that yeah. possible lynching confession. That's so interesting. He should never have been taken from the jail. That yeah. should never have happened. That's yeah. it's horrible. It's horrible. And he insisted that the lynch mob that had gotten the confession out of him was unlawful. And he just told them what they wanted to hear, Mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. So there's no evidence that Charlie Young actually tried to help Noah. There's no uh, record of a a letter returning from the NAACP. In the August 2nd, 1924 court review of the case, they noted that in order for the court to remove the guilty plea and substitute it for a plea of not guilty, it would require, quote, an abuse of discretion. Appellant entered a plea of guilty voluntarily and not in ignorance of his rights or because misled by erroneous advice of counsel, end quote. They insisted that a judge has the right to place the extreme sentence upon anyone that is found guilty of this crime, even in cases in which they plead guilty themselves. Quote, it is expressed when there is manifested a deliberate intention unlawfully to take away the life of a fellow creature. It is implied when no considerable provocation appears or when the circumstances attending the killing show an abandoned or malignant heart, which we hear with Raymond Snowden. In our judgment, the evidence shows express malice within the above statutory definition. The only possible question which can be raised in this connection is whether there was sufficient deliberation to show express malice. We conclude there was. The evidence shows no provocation and certainly shows an abandoned and malignant heart, end quote. The court also reiterated that the confession extracted by Noah by the lynch mob was not used as evidence in the trial. Quote, appellant knew he had committed an atrocious murder, had every reason to believe he would be convicted, and was speculating whether his chance of escaping the death penalty would be better upon a plea of not guilty and trial by jury or upon a plea of guilty and judgment by the court. The judgment should not be set aside merely because he is disappointed in the result which he hoped would follow, end quote. So four Idaho Supreme Court judge concurred with this look at the case, and Judge William Lee dissented. He felt that the lynch mob was such a frightening experience for Noah that he wouldn't have a fair trial from a jury in that mm-hmm. community. And when asked if he understood that by pleading guilty, the judge would, could impose the death penalty, quote, He was so frightened, he did not answer, but relied upon the advice of counsel, which the state had furnished him, and he believed that the confession which the mob had extorted from him could be used if he stood trial, Mm. and so allowed the plea of guilty to stand, end quote. Mm. The judge ends his argument saying that it's detrimental to Idaho courts to support the commission of guilt Noah put in Mm. after the lynch mob, end quote, which is totally understanding. 
quote, there should be no appearance of the court's approving or countenancing in any degree some of the proceedings resorted to by which this plea of guilty was probably obtained, end quote. So he's saying that by upholding the death sentence, the court was supporting future lynch mobs and other forced admissions of guilt. With only one dissent, the court denied Noah's petition for a rehearing. Nobody was coming to his rescue. The gallows were still standing in preparation of David Hoagland's execution date on November 14th. David, as we heard earlier in the season, was given a last-minute life sentence. Noah was not so lucky. Warden Snook had not conducted a hanging since 1909 when he conducted the execution of Fred Seward that you can hear about on episode 29. The gallows had a new system installed, so nobody had to pull the trap door. A bucket of water would serve as the counterbalance to the trap. On December 17, 1924, Noah signed over his prison commissary money to the minister of the African Methodist Church. On December 18, 1924, Noah had his final meal around lunchtime. Ham and eggs, soup, pudding, toast, and coffee. He could hear the trap door being tested outside his cell in the prison rose garden. He told the death watch guard, quote, I guess it's working all right, end quote. The officer agreed, and after a minute he said, quote, Well, there's one thing that I want, and that is to have it work all right. I don't want to be choked or strangled, end quote. I cannot imagine hearing it and just being like it's for me like right facing death in that way just yeah horrifying Ugh. he was in a good mood and he was like talking with guards and he admitted that he had killed five men in his life but not william crisp he asked for the daily statesman that day mm -hmm. and he saw his photo and remarked quote i didn't think i looked as tough as that oh <laughs> So he's seeing his own mugshot Ugh. in the newspaper and going, oh, I didn't think, you know, which we right. can see today. Like, right. oh, man, it's so crazy. Interesting. He went to sleep around 7 that night telling the guard, quote, well, so long, see you in the morning, end quote. Unfortunately, he was woken up at around midnight. Warden John Snook read Noah the death warrant, which ended with, quote, and that you shall then and there suffer the death penalty in the manner provided by law, end quote. Noah asked, quote, that doesn't say anything about the time, does it? <laughs> Warden Snook said no, and that it didn't make a difference. Noah responded, quote, the last time I talked to Judge McNaughton, he told me the execution would take place between 5 o'clock in the morning and 12 o'clock at night. No, that doesn't make any difference now, Arnold replied. A smile spread over his face, end quote. So he was thinking, oh, I, I have until yeah. at least five tomorrow morning. Oh, he's been woken up at midnight. The minister of the African Methodist Church asked if he had made peace with God, and Noah said that he had. He then asked if he was ready to die, and Noah said he was. Warden Snook asked if he had any final words. Noah said, quote, I want you all to know that I am not guilty of the murder of William Crisp, end quote. Snook asked who committed the murder, and Noah replied, quote, Mike Donnelly killed Crisp, end quote. Noah walked up the steps of the gallows in the prison rose garden unassisted, stood on the trap where his hands and legs were belted. The noose was secured around his neck. There he said, quote, do a good job of it because I don't want to strangle, end quote. They put a bag over his head, and a new mechanism began to cycle. 
It was December 19th at midnight, and according to a headline on the Statesman from December 18th, the county in grip of cold wave, Idaho shivers as mercury drops. Warren reports 29 below zero, warmest two degrees above. It was freezing outside, and onlookers noted Noah Arnold was shivering on the scaffold. The trap was counterbalanced with a bucket of water that would spring once it ran out of water. If you can see the problem, the water froze. So Noah Arnold stood in the trap for some time while guards grabbed a bucket of hot water to unfreeze the stream. Noah said, quote, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, and was stopped when the trap sprung at 12.20 a.m. Noah Arnold fell to the end of the rope. Quote, there was a jerk, the body quivered three times, then dangled inert at the end of the rope, end quote. <sighs> Noah was pronounced dead at 11.29 a.m. He was cut down and put in a pine box. He was buried in the prison cemetery the next morning. And it is an unmarked grave. We, mm. we don't know where Noah Arnold is actually buried in the prison cemetery. Whew. So Executions are just, it's so heavy. Oh, like you can talk man. about it in sort of like distanced and, and like, you know, professional ways. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like he had to sit and wait mm-hmm. for them to boil water oh. to melt the water that would essentially lead to his death like and you're standing there in between two and 20 minus 29 degree weather yeah yeah. the impact that would have on on him obviously but on the prison population Mm -hmm. you know there are people living in that 1890 cell house Mm -hmm. who are hearing that trap door just like noah is there are people in the prison yard who probably helped construct the gallows like it's so intense. And then the impact on prison authorities, on the police, on everybody who's there. They talked about how the they were all just kind of huddled together, yeah. like, you know, shivering, watching, waiting for this to happen, <sighs> you know. And just in my interactions with correctional authorities today, they practice executions every month. Hmm. Like, because they don't want it to be botched. They don't want yeah. this to happen, yeah. you know. They want it to be smooth and right. that happen quickly and i know the uh some of the folks that have to actually go through with this and make sure that somebody dies and right. it it impacts Ugh. them and it impacts the entire prison staff like yeah. tremendous amount so ugh, ugh. it's such a heavy yeah. heavy topic yeah. and man I mean, obviously Noah Arnold had had problems yeah, throughout his sure. whole life and i don't think that reformatory did any yeah benefits to him and his well-being and it probably just trained him to be a a better better criminal criminal and less empathy towards anybody else because of the beatings that he probably both took and gave while he was incarcerated there and then man rough one yeah it was a rough one maybe we should end it on a maybe a a more uh hopeful note so anthony what are some goals for 2023 you've got gosh Wow, you know what? I have not even thought. <laughs> I, you know, I should probably exercise. I don't know. Uh, how about you, Sky? I mean, my my ultimate goal is is that you know my research in Los Angeles is going to go well. Yeah. And I think you know my goal is really to have a, a rough draft done by the summer, but just to you know 
just keep moving forward, having a good year. I turned 30 in 2023, which is bonkers. So uh, entering a new decade and uh, hopeful for, which now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm like, I can't believe I'm turning 30, which I'm sure to other people's like, is not a big deal. But (laughs) it's, I mean, you know, a new decade, who knows? But yeah, I'm I'm hopeful and uh, excited. Yeah, it's like my last full year in school. Nice. Ever, yeah. hopefully, maybe. <laughs> That's awesome. Probably. Well, good luck with all of that. All I know, you're traveling a lot for school. I and am. I, yeah. I hope you have so much fun Thanks. and enjoy like the weather. This yeah. You know, this winter, spring. Uh, yeah. You're down in L. A. Like, I know. I'll I'm miss jealous. the summer, which will be perfect. Oh, it's man. yeah. I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to see what I found and and to dig into you know the stories of these sites and and these the women that I'm looking at and and. Uh, you know, just adding to what I found at Sun Valley. And, and yeah. it's so fun to be able to have that Idaho connection. Totally. Um, maybe maybe one day we can do a little mini episode on like what in the world I've been doing for oh. three years. But yeah, it's so crazy. And uh, I'm just grateful that we get to keep doing this and yeah. people still want to hear our voices oh my gosh. Um, and want to hear <laughs> these stories, even if they are, you know, Ooh. depressing and, and hard. But we've, you know, we had some that were, um, I don't want to say happy, but that, you know, they reform themselves mm-hmm. or whatever case may be. So um, hopeful for uh, opportunities to tell more of those stories. Yeah, for sure. So everybody, thank you so much for tagging <laughs> along with us yeah. this year through the mining history yep. and some of these dark stories mm-hmm. and some of these you know, fairly redemptive stories we've told this last season. And yeah. Let us know what you like. Mm-hmm. Let us know what you don't like. Mm-hmm. What can we improve on? What do you want more of? Cause... But like in a nice way, don't be mean, please. <laughs> 2023. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. Well, in this new year, I guess you probably ought to... Do your own time. And do your own number. Yeah. yeah. Talk to you in a few months. <laughs> if you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. I was there, there was about a dozen of us, the guard, and, and uh, there was a few guards and it was done. At, it was dark when it just took place. It was before daylight because some people were going to assemble up on the hill there and watch it. And Dad didn't want them watching it, so he did it when it was still dark. And that's when he hung him. I was there at the time. How did he ask you? Why did he ask you to be there? Well, I lived there. Well, I think what she means is why did Grandpa get you up that morning early to go over to the hang? No, he, I used to just go all over there. So I went, I, I, I went there. <laughs> so were you the only young person that witnessed that hanging? Yeah. Do you remember the hanging? Oh, yeah, I was there. I saw, just saw the whole thing. So when they brought him in, the fellow brought him in. And they put the rope around his neck and everything. And did they give him a last word or a last cigarette, any of that kind of stuff? They asked him if he had anything to say. Did he say anything? Yeah, he said he'd like to be 
have a few minutes to get in this cell with the fellow who told on him. <laughs> He'd kill him. <laughs> and that that hanging took place inside the walls of the pen. Is that right? It was inside the walls, yeah. Do you know where in the yard that, that hanging took place? Yeah, I know exactly where it was. They built a special scaffold for him. And Dad, when you and I went through there with Mom a couple of years ago, wasn't it where there's a little garden now? Yeah. Uh, rose garden. That rose garden. And Dad said that it, the scaffold was where that rose garden was. Could, could any of the prisoners see the, uh, the hanging from, from their cell blocks? Uh, no. 